I'm Don Hawkins, and I once heard Chick-fil-A founder Truett Cathy say, you can tell if a person needs encouragement, check to see if they're breathing. I'd like to invite you to my weekly podcast, Encouragement for You, featuring encouraging guests like Dr. Greg and Aaron Smalley, Dan Cathy, the late Dr. Frank Menrith, Josh McDowell, and more. To subscribe to my weekly Encouragement for You podcast, go to lifeaudio.com. That's lifeaudio.com. Are you concerned about tensions in the Middle East? Do you wonder where we're currently at in the biblical timeline? Are we really in the last days? Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Carl Muller with the Inside the Epicenter podcast. Every week, my co-host, best-selling author Joel Rosenberg, and I answer those questions and more. You'll hear inside knowledge of our meetings with leaders at the highest levels of government in the U.S., Israel, and the Middle East, equipping you to filter the news with biblically sound insights. Find Inside the Epicenter on your favorite podcast app or go to joshuafund.com to listen and subscribe. Hello, and welcome to the Hearn Him Podcast. I'm Dale. And I am Tamara. And when two theologians get married, what you get is a podcast. Well, it has been some strange days in the Christian world. Yeah. Mm. I think it's been that way for a while, but there was a report that came out, and the investigation had been ongoing. So we're going to jump right into this just because it's there's no, there's no fun lead-in to this one today. This is just a real rough one. But there was an investigation that's been going on for months now, and the report has come out about apologist Ravi Zacharias. And for those of you who don't know who Ravi Zacharias is, he's someone who was widely respected and admired throughout the course of his life for decades, really, as someone who was a man of faith and who uh, taught a lot of people how to think and how to defend the faith. He was an apologist. He traveled around the world speaking. He wrote books. And he was a really widely respected figure. And recently he passed away from, I believe it was uh, spinal cancer. Yeah. And throughout the evangelical world, people praised his work. Um, and they noted that he was a man of virtue and integrity in a lot of those tributes. But as it turns out, he had a lot of skeletons in his closet that he had been keeping for at least a decade, if not longer. Yeah. And... It certainly isn't anything to make light of in regards to what he has been accused of. And I think it's more than just, you know, accusations being thrown around. The report said that there was certainly evidence to affirm accusations from women. Um, The report was long and there was a lot of evidence. And I just started skimming and skipping paragraphs just because it was pretty heinous. Yeah, and so what... Basically, what the report was saying um, is that he was a perpetrator of the habitual and routine sexual and spiritual abuse of literally hundreds of women. And yeah, when you read the report, there's certainly details of of how he sexually abused women and how he uh, used his spiritual authority to coerce women into doing things um, from you know, his routine massages and those becoming more than what they should have been um, to pictures and even the way that he was using the ministry's funds, I guess, to coerce, to fund, yeah. mm-hmm. but even to fund some of his own dark secrets, really. And there was a lot in there about um, accountability and things like that. And there was a lot of apologies from the board and from the ministry at large because 
he didn't have the kind of accountability that he should have had as the ministry leader, as someone with this kind of an influence. And um, that's probably a whole nother topic uh, in regards to the type of accountability that people with such great influence and um, a massive following should have. But the ministry fell short. And he, as a Christian, I mean, it's not all on the board and their lack of accountability to him. Like, he's responsible for his own actions. And he, I feel like saying he fell short is... Right. Is, I was just going to say that. I'm like, falling short is like a Christian euphemism for... He was monstrous in the way that he treated literally hundreds of women around yeah, the world. Yeah, to to say he fell short, it it falls short of, <laughs> of of expressing just how concerning this is and how I guess for lack of better terms on my end, uh, just disgusting. As I was reading the article, like my stomach was turning, and as a woman having, I guess been placed in in similar situations of you know men being just a little bit too forward in the, well, <laughs> reading the report was more than just a little bit on this well case. he yeah. was he was more than a little bit but it there's just such a a range that i think most women have experienced from men unfortunately in terms of um the forwardness of men and their desires sexually and as a woman, it's it's hard, you know, to know, well, was him rubbing my shoulder suggestive of something or am I overreacting? And I can only imagine how these events snowballed for these hundreds of women. Um, and I just feel for them and they are victims. They are victims of a crime. And as a Christian community, we cannot make light of that in any way. Right. Yeah, and so um, Robbie Zacharias, he had back issues for many years, and so he often would uh, be treated by massage therapy. But just reading the reports of him exposing himself and raping and intimidating and otherwise sexually assaulting all these women is uh, just heinous. And I think the maybe not the most heinous part, but an additional heinous, horrifying part to it is the, the spiritual overtones. Uh, with the language that he would use, that he would use his spiritual authority to coerce mm -hmm. and to abuse people and really to kind of bring God into that situation where God has no business being. No. And it, it makes it all the more horrifying. And there's a conversation that I wanted to have before this report came out. Uh, and then this report kind of came across uh, my newsfeed and literally everybody else's newsfeed. And it's kind of case in point as to why we, we need this conversation and why there's a movement that's been going on. Uh, and what I want to talk about today is deconstruction of the faith. Whenever something like this happens, it's a catalyst for a lot of people to start deconstructing. And there's something of a movement around that right now, deconstruction. Um, it's kind of trendy to deconstruct your faith and to doubt things. Uh, but I want to talk about it as as a movement. What are its causes? What are its dangers? And even too, what are some of the benefits of that some conversations are being had in the midst of this real sense of confusion that uh, so many of us are feeling as we look to trusted Christian leaders who are not acting at all like Christians? Yeah. And so what is deconstruction? 
Yeah, so deconstruction is a term that I believe finds its origin in academia, but it's kind of filtered down through to common usage. And, and really, all it means is that uh, a person is in the process of systematically dismantling the beliefs, uh, the belief systems that they were raised up in, uh, kind of to see if they're just cultural or generational relics of the previous generation, or if there's something that actually holds true there. And and if so, what is the truth within that? So it's kind of like l- looking at a, a house that is kind of sliding sideways and kind of l- pulling things apart and looking into the foundation of that and, and what might need to be ripped away and what might need to be rebuilt. And so for some... Deconstruction, it leads to kind of a reordering of theological systems or even the way that we see that church should operate or the values that we should hold as primary values as opposed to secondary values. And I know certainly I've gone through my fair share of reordering over the past half a decade. And, you know, that's always an ongoing process. Which I think is a good process. Yes, I think so. As Christians... In some form or another, we should be taking part in this process because a lot of what we see uh, in the Christian world tends to be cultural or culturally placed in where we are, where we live, the people that we're with. And so it is good to kind of step back and look at that and see what is of value here and what was maybe a tradition in my family or in my hometown or church group. So the process of deconstruction, I think, is is good to some degree. And we shouldn't view it as some taboo term that if you're a Christian and you're going through this deconstructing process, that it's bad, that you're... You're backslidden. Right. So I, I think that there is a degree of it that just about every Christian should go through and later we'll give some examples of some really solid Christians in our church history that we've seen gone through this. Yeah, I think the the danger side of it though unfortunately is once you start the deconstructing process it can get kind of scary uh, if you don't feel like there's enough of a foundation for you and your belief system you can deconstruct yourself right out of being a Christian to mm. where now you don't affirm anything that looks like the Christian faith anymore, the biblical Christian faith. And so it can be a a, a scary time as you start to pull things away, what is load-bearing and and what is not, and how do you make those determinations? I think that's why it's a scary process to see other people go through and we say like, oh, they're backsliding or like they're lacking faith or whatever, when, when really it'd be better to lean into those conversations to work through what are the load-bearing pieces of this that we can't strip away. And then once we have that, we can strip basically everything else away and then put something else in its place. Yeah, and that's because it's important to have a a good foundation underneath you before you begin this process, I think. Uh, So I would probably be worried about maybe some of my friends that are new believers that maybe are doing this right away because they might not have a good uh, foundation and, and might not know what absolutely should stay and what should go. But nevertheless, I think it's still a process that at some point every Christian has to go through. Yeah. And I think even for new believers, they don't necessarily need to deconstruct anything because there wasn't anything pre-existing there for them. Like they come in fresh and you can build up the house from there. 
where I feel like for, say, like you and me or other people who grew up in the church in a particular cultural moment, there's a lot of stuff, there's a lot of baggage there that has accumulated that we need to do some spring cleaning on that maybe isn't always there necessarily for someone who's fresh to the faith. Yeah, but if they're fresh to the faith and they're looking at what does it look like to be a Christian in America right now, they might be deconstructing it uh, from the outside looking in. Right. Because if they're seeing a lot of, like if they're reading this report, that that's hard going in and thinking, well, is this what my faith is about? And so maybe that's not technically deconstructing. Maybe that's just a different kind of wrestling with the faith. Because um, as a new believer, I imagine if you came to faith or if Robbie had some great influence in your life and coming to faith, like this could be pretty, pretty shattering. And it is shattering for a lot of people who Robbie Zacharias was pivotal to their faith. Oh, I know people that were atheists. And it's through the ministry of Ravi Zacharias that they would say his ministry was highly influential in then coming to faith. And so that's not to say that their faith is illegitimate uh, or anything like that. But just for people who have that process that they've went through, I imagine in some way they're wanting to deconstruct something. Right. And really what we're kind of talking about here is how deconstruction starts, which is really a complicated conversation. It's it's usually a, any number of factors that are going to lead to this. You're not just going to wake up one morning feeling satisfied and thinking, oh, you know what? I'm going to rethink everything about my faith. And maybe eventually when I'm when I'm done evaluating it, I'll just walk away from it. I mean, maybe if you have nothing else to do. <laughs> I don't know. Right. But th- there's typically uh, the process starts uh, when a person begins to experience some kind of cognitive dissonance about something. And that's what happened with Ravi. This great apologist, seems like a godly man, has so much spiritual insight and wisdom, turns out was sexually perverted, abusive, and a predator. You're like, whoa, like there's there's a disconnect somewhere where thing, things are so compartmentalized mm. that you, it, it's jarring and, and you can't quite put it back together. And so uh, there's this process where it's like what you believe or what you know you're supposed to believe doesn't really match up with what you're seeing in the world. And that can happen in kind of like a few different sectors. And, and the first one would be in these kind of public uh, scandals, particularly when other Christians don't seem to be responding it with the same visceral response that you do when you hear about it. And I think we've seen some of that with Ravi Zacharias where, and maybe they're not leaders that I've seen that are, you know, these huge influential leaders, but I have seen comments from other Christians like, uh, don't be the first to throw stones, like everyone sins and falls short. And they're treating it as if it's not this absolutely horrific. Right, like, oop, just made a slip up. Yeah, like, We all oh, make mistakes. He just told a little white lie. Like this in, uh, sorry. <laughs> this just really disturbed me, especially seeing people's comments. And the reaction was by some, like, oh, we all sin and we can't scrutinize him or ruin the legacy that he has left and that is that like his legacy is more important than the hundreds of victims right and that's the problem too is then you are not hearing or listening or being empathetic 
or having any type of compassion on the victims when that's the kind of response you have. I've and I've I've read some comments on uh, the various places that this report has been published, and I've seen people say things that I'm just so baffled by. Like they are impugning the character of the people who are publishing the report and doing the investigation, saying that you know what's the what's the good of going after the reputation of a great man who has now died like it's it's in poor taste to be drudging up things from this great man after he's already dead his victims are still alive right and whatever that looks like to be someone who has been sexually assaulted or taken advantage of or coerced Something needs to be done about that. And you can't just sweep it under the rug just because someone has passed away, especially when his ministry is still so large and the legacy that he has left through the ministry and through foundations outside of that ministry. Like it's a it's a large stretching ministry and the truth needs to come to light regardless of how that makes him look, because he's the one who acted in that way. It's not like you're lying about him like it's proven that this is true and these are the actions that he took for years and years and years even I think there was one that said he had a text of a nude image of a woman maybe a year or within the year that he died so it's not as if this was even some old history in his life like this was up until his death Yeah, I saw there was another tweet that kind of had some legs to it uh, that was published by a kind of popular theologian in the reformers conservative space. And it said something to the effect of like, unbelievers look at a scandal like this and they think, oh, I hate people like that. Believers look at a scandal and say, that could have easily been me. May God have mercy on me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, remind me never to have like, my wife or my sister or anybody, any woman in my life alone Mm -hmm. in a room with that fool, because if it could easily be you, yeah, like either you are minimizing Mm. what is going on a or B, if it could easily be you, then like this, this, this problem is pretty rampant because Mm -hmm. it couldn't easily be me. You know, like, and that's not to say that you are not going to fall into sin or, deal with temptation, but to the level of this sin taking over his life year after year, woman after woman, country after country, to where it's hundreds of women, for that to easily be any Christian man to where they are violating hundreds of women, like that's a whole nother problem. Right. Like I'm going to, this may be arrogant, but I'm going to put my stake in the ground right now and, and hereby swear that I will never rape a woman, let alone hundreds of them. That could mm. not easily mm. be me. There's yeah. there's a, some kind of psychopathy that is hmm. in the mind of a person that does that. And so to minimize that is, it's just baffling. And that just confuses people. And it makes them just like, I don't want to be associated with that kind of nonsense. Right, where Christians can't even own up to it and say, no, that's wrong. 
Yeah, just because you like him. Wrong. I loved yes. listening to him. Yeah. When I was in college, like I listened to hours and hours of Robbie Zacharias. So did I. I had I admired him greatly. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's confusing that now I have to turn heel toe in light of new information. But that's what we got to do because that's the truth and the victims deserve to be seen and recognized and mm-hmm. for their stories to be dignified and for them not to be minimized just because this guy was really eloquent and really smart and had some really good insights when it came to scripture and philosophy and, and was very helpful to us in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so this podcast is not all about Robbie Zacharias, even though I know we keep going back to him. But There are other scandals in there recent... Are. I think even just like the insurrection is another one that people are just very confused in their faith that's causing them like, whoa, like, do I really want to be a part of like this Christian thing? Well, and that's because it had so many Christian undertones to it. Like there were so many yeah, things. Undertones, overtones, side by side tones. Like it was, <laughs> it was in the whole fabric, you know? Yeah. Well, and I mean, the president who was involved in this had said he was Christian and so that is that just wrinkles everything that much more because the person who is of power, who is of influence, who supported what happened to the Capitol is also someone who is part of the Christian American Christian realm and other Christian leaders supporting him. Like it just kind of has this trickle effect and in the end, people are left wondering, is this what Christianity is about? Is this what it stands for? And if all Christians are in line with this, maybe I, I that's not what I want to be. Because yeah, exactly. if there's other Christians speaking out against it because it seems clear that it's wrong, then that makes sense. But when it is continuously Christian leaders of great power and great influence and great authority uh, who are continuously at the forefront of large scandals it certainly causes people to question whether they want to be part of Christianity or not. Yeah, and I think the capital insurrection was like this boiling over moment where you see the Jesus save signs, you see the crosses of people who are you know, tearing down the walls and harming people inside the Capitol building and trying to stop the democratic process. Uh, but it, it's part of this larger kind of baffling thing that has been the ongoing love affair between white evangelicalism and Donald Trump over the past, past you know, five plus years. And I'm not saying like if you voted for him that that's, you know, I'm not going to say it's right, but uh, that it was like it doesn't mean, it means you're a bad Christian or like anything like that. That's not what I'm talking about. Like, oh, he he, you know, appointed pro-life judges, the conservative judges. I believe in that. So I think it offset, you know, kind of making these measurements. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this all out love affair between white evangelicalism, kind of spiritualizing support for Donald Trump, kind of seeing him as some somewhat of a savior figure. The whole QAnon conspiracy kind of floating into white alongside white evangelicalism, the white nationalism, white supremacy kind of floating in to the church, intermingling with all of that. Um, That is very troubling for Christians of all stripes. And you always find yourself in a difficult situation when you view someone as a savior and you view them as not being able to do wrong. And I think 
that happened a lot with Trump. Right. A lot of people thought he could do no wrong, even though it seemed as if he was on the forefront of, of doing a lot of wrong. A lot of wrong. And I know it's not as cut and dry as that, but to view anyone as incapable of sinning <laughs> right. is is a problem in and of itself. And it's a terrible starting point when it comes to how we view our faith. Yeah, and I'm speaking just for me on this one. But I think where the issue lies for me and what has been troubling for me uh, over the past four or five years is that growing up, being raised by a conservative generation and the generation of, say, my parents or just older than me, being like really willing to jump all over someone on the left because of their moral failings and saying like, hey, character counts, character counts. Like we we are wanting people who have a character that is, if, they're, if they aren't a Christian, at least it's like a, a Judeo-Christian ethic and character and anything in the slightest that goes up against that, like we're going to have something to say about it. Being raised with that, and then Donald Trump comes to the fore, and he's none of that, and he is just vile and so crass in so many ways and and really not embodying that, that character. All of a sudden, we can make justifications for that. And really, when I saw that switch, it's like, oh, like maybe it wasn't about character at all. Maybe it was just about power. And I think that's what a lot of people have had crossed their mind. And I think that has triggered deconstruction because they begin to question it. Yeah. And another, I think, piece of what causes deconstruction is if you have anything happen to you personally, like if there has been something within the church that has personally hurt you, and usually it does come from some sort of leadership uh, decision. Going back to Robbie Zacharias, I mean, he has hundreds of victims. And so those victims on a very personal level have been more than just wronged by him, but they've been assaulted by him and they've been taken advantage of by him. And so whenever anyone has those kind of encounters with someone within the church, it usually leads to some level of deconstruction. Yeah. And you, so the abuse, obviously, because Robbie Zacharias had hundreds of victims and there are any number of victimizers in whatever community that you're in. And so if that has personally impacted you, it, it's obvious that it's going to make you question mm -hmm. because there is a, mm -hmm. there's such a spiritual overtone to that, mm -hmm. that it, it creates such a dissonance in you right. that it, you couldn't help but, but begin to even just question even a little bit. And, and beyond abuse, I think even just bad experiences mm -hmm. growing up in the church, like if you grew up in the church in the nineties or the, the two thousands, there was this whole like, I kiss dating goodbye courtship kind of situation that it was like this really weird countercultural thing that was very in vogue for a while. And I think it, it, it did a lot of damage to a lot of people who have felt hurt by being kind of forced into that particular culture. And there may be other things too. And, and a lot of things that end up uh, getting swept under the rug and I think that's part that's part of it too is the 
is not the fact that bad things happen within the church because we had a whole podcast on like when leadership fails and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. I think the part that makes it so much worse is when those things get swept under the rug. That's where the real confusion comes in because any reasonable person can, you know, like here's the values that we hold to because we believe in biblical Christianity and biblical uh, convictions. And if someone falls out of that, like we, we expect that that would happen. That's not, I mean, it can be tragic and it can be jarring and it can be uh, traumatic in a lot of ways. But if it's dealt with in a way that we would expect it to when something like that happens, then, then we can kind of recover from that. But when it's swept under the rug or it's minimized or it's justified or it's not dealt with, that's where we really get that disconnect between what we think we thought we believed and what we see actually playing out. Yeah, and when you see it actually be dealt with the way that it's supposed to be dealt with, there's actually some reassurance to your faith. It's actually faith building, right? It is because you're thinking, okay, yeah, there's grace and there's forgiveness, but there is also measures that need to be taken depending on what the action is or what the situation is. But there are measures that need to be taken and sometimes in terms of discipline and sometimes in terms of um, building that person back up and redemption and what that looks like. But those are the measures that you expect should be taken when when you find yourself in a situation that shouldn't have happened. Yeah. So it can be these kind of larger scandals that happen. It can be individual scandals where you have this personal situation that happened. I think another thing that triggers deconstruction is when your personal experiences have put you at odds with like essential Christian teachings, or at least what you have been led to believe are essential Christian teachings. I've seen this happen a lot with people who maybe come from a really conservative church that says, it's impossible for you to be a Christian and for you to believe in evolution. If you're a Christian, then that means that you are a seven-day creationist. Otherwise, you're a heretic and you're probably not a Christian. And then if you're a scientist and you (laughs) have a different belief— which I think is allowable. I mean, I'm not bashing seven-day creationists. I think they, they make some valid arguments. Uh, but I think it's within the realm of possibility that they're not correct. And I don't think that's a first-tier issue, but some have made it a first-tier issue. And so if you land on the opposite side of that, you feel like I have to choose between what I believe to be true and my faith. And where those things aren't even at odds, it, mm. can, it can force you into this false dichotomy, which then causes you to deconstruct. And another example of that is I think when we hear from Christian leaders that the only party you can be part of is the Republican party. And that's the only party that a Christian can be part of. And I certainly grew up that way. I grew up thinking that Christians are Republicans and Republicans are Christians. Like they're one and the same. And if you disagree with that, then you're not Christian. Obviously a heretic. Yeah. So That's probably another one of those where there's certainly room (laughs) to not agree with that statement. And there's room for you to still be a person of faith and to still be a Christian and not necessarily be a Republican. Yeah. I think another one is is where we find uh, homophobia in the church. Mm. And now we hold to a traditional view of marriage, a traditional view of sex between one man, one woman for a lifetime commitment, but there's a lot more nuance to that conversation than I think has occurred in a lot of churches, which if you identify as LGBTQ or someone you care about does, it can be jarring the way that you or those you care about are spoken of 
when there's a real crisis, there's a real something happening within you or that person that requires empathy and ongoing conversation and not just the sledgehammer of condemnation. So that can really push you towards deconstruction. And I think another one too is just when you had legitimate questions, you had legitimate questions about the reliability of the Bible, you had mm. legitimate questions about church structures. Is this the best way that we should do this or that? You had questions about uh, women in leadership and you just didn't get satisfying answers to those questions not for lack of trying on your end, but because, you know, whatever circle you were running in or whatever resources were available to you, they kind of shut those questions down and, again, gave you the, the sledgehammer of condemnation rather than the right hand of conversation. And it can set you on a path to where you just start ripping and tearing things out until it starts to make sense to you mm-hmm. because there's no talking to these people who are, are just going to try and punch you in the face every time you question something. And so that can really set you on a path towards just kind of pulling things apart. And unfortunately for many people, if they don't have anyone to guide them, then you're just going to pull everything out until you ain't got nothing left. Mm. Yeah. And so there's a lot of different ways you can arrive at deconstructing elements of your faith. But when it comes to us doing that, we also need to make space for reconstructing and that's really important because, like we said earlier, you can have pieces that you deconstruct and that's okay and it's healthy for your faith, but to lose your faith entirely is not healthy. And I think people end up there when they focus solely on deconstructing and have no... They have no reconstruction They plan. have no reconstruction. Yeah. I think a lot of times, too, you don't even know what to build back up and so you just end up living in the ruins of it. I mean, that makes sense. And we have examples of other Christians who've done that. I mean, Martin Luther, he certainly deconstructed in a lot of ways. Right. Like they wouldn't have and called his, it back then, but that's basically he's like, wait, like what if I, what if everything we're doing is wrong? Uh huh. Yeah. But his entire life mission was to reconstruct. And you've obviously seen that through the Reformation and everything that we have as Christians because of Martin Luther questioning some of the things that were happening around him and trying to make sense of his faith, what he was reading and what was happening within the church. Um, But then you have other people like the author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye, who (laughs) has, has completely deconstructed himself into oblivion. Yeah. Yeah. Where he is not a Christian anymore. Like he would say, I am not a person of faith at all. Yeah, he renounces his book, he renounces yeah. his faith, he renounces everything. Which goes to show that he was caught up in some of the toxic culture that was around him and that damaged him greatly. Mm. Even though he's the one that literally wrote the book on it. He was young at the time and it wasn't purely his making mm-hmm. that culture that had, had had kind of swept him and he went in that stream. But we want to make sure that we're on the side that deconstructs to reconstruct rather than the one that deconstructs into oblivion. What are some good tips for that? (laughs) I think it's important to always be reminded of your foundation and the first tier issues. So salvation is through Jesus, through faith alone, 
and not because of anything you've done. Like those are some first tier issues and the fact that Jesus is the son of God and, and died and rose again to offer salvation. Like those are, those are pieces that you can't slip away from. Those are foundational to your faith. And as long as you continue to keep those as your foundation, I think you have room in other areas where the Bible is not black and white. And it seems like there's room for you to have a different different opinion from another Christian. And obviously going back to scripture time and time again to to allow that to be part of the process of your deconstruction. Because if you're trying to deconstruct apart from scripture, <laughs> then like you're just living your own life. Right. You're just kind of like swimming out in the ocean. Yeah. You're just trying to take your own philosophies and views of the world. And as smart as <laughs> I'm sure many of our listeners are. We have your... the smartest listeners of any podcast that's ever been <laughs> yeah. Been recorded, but I mean, as as smart as you are, and uh, <laughs> as great of a thinker as you are, you can't deconstruct your faith apart from Scripture. You just can't do it because then you're just left to your own thoughts, and that's not going to get you very far. Yeah, and I think that another thing is just to resolve from the outset that you are seeking not to doubt for the sake of doubting, but to continue in your effort to believe in who Jesus is and then find clarity around what that looks like. And I think one passage of scripture that kind of helps us understand that is in Mark chapter nine. And this was when a man came to Jesus and he was asking if Jesus would cast a demon out of his son And so this is Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 21. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if I can, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus went on to cast that demon out. But that phrase is compelling and it's always stuck with me i believe but i don't but i want to so please help me i think just about every christian can resonate with that (laughs) and the bible is not against you challenging it the bible is not it's no frat not so fragile right because it will hold up it is truth and as much as you want to wrestle with it, that's fine. But Jesus has to be in that process and the Holy Spirit has to be in that process um, because you can't continue to seek truth apart from the one who is truth. And there is plenty in the Christian faith, in the church, in Christian homes, in like in your families to question and to wonder, is this tradition, is this culture, or is this Jesus? And as people that are still living in a fallen world, we're not going to get it right. And the leaders aren't always going to get it right. Not that that gives them an excuse uh, for for horrendous sin, um, but 
you're not going to find someone that perfectly embodies the Christian faith because that person doesn't exist apart from Jesus. <laughs> uh, so there are going to be things in your faith that you're going to have to question. And as you mature and as you grow in your faith, you're going to see that and you're going to be able to question it and you're going to be able to continue to go back to scripture and find the answers or even to look at and say, I don't know. I don't know. And the Bible is not very clear about that. And that means it's going to be a second tier issue. So it's okay to question things in your faith and it's okay to wrestle with them and to do everything within your power to find those answers. You don't have to sit there and sweep them under the rug. You don't have to pretend they don't. That's the worst thing you could do. Right. You don't have to pretend they don't exist. And you don't have to think that the Bible is so fragile that it's going to fall apart as soon as you begin to question it. And I think it's important as you say the Bible holds up. A lot of times when people say that, it's coded language for my worldview holds up and the Bible justifies it. Mm. And I know that's not what you're saying, but that's what's often conveyed when that is said. And maybe the worldview of the person saying that does end up holding up by and large. But a lot of times, maybe it doesn't. And so your world worldview needs to adjust and needs to shift and it needs, needs to become more biblical and, and less predetermined on, on whatever you are raised in and what your culture is. And so in that regard, the Bible holds up in that it is internally consistent. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And where there are inconsistencies, the inconsistency isn't with the scripture. The inconsistency is with you and with how... Yeah. You're interpreting it or how it's been interpreted for you. Mm-hmm. And so then you have to wrestle through it. Well, then what is right and what is wrong? And that's where, you know, biblical scholarship and uh, historical context and all these things that we talk about all the time come into play as we seek to discover and uncover the internal logic of Scripture mm. rather than manufacture it and then like shoehorn biblical interpretations on top of that. Right. And because there are people around you that are going to be wrong— that doesn't make Jesus wrong and it doesn't negate the truth of who he is and who he says he is. Um, he has never failed in upholding his promises and continuing to show us and prove to us over and over again that he is who he says he is. And so regardless of the unfortunately poor leadership that we see sometimes by Christians and the poor influences that we see by Christians those are not reflections of Jesus himself. Unfortunately, those are reflections of broken, sinful people continuing in their journey of sanctification. And there's certainly measures of grace that we need to extend to them. Um, but it's important in your journey of deconstruction to reconstruction that you remember Jesus is truth and he is who he says he is. Right. And I believe there's pretty ironclad evidence that Jesus did raise from the dead. And if that's true, maybe we should do a podcast about that one because that's a whole conversation in itself. Mm, yeah. But I, I firmly believe like from a factual level that yeah. is true. And if that's true, then that means that Jesus is who he said he is. And that means I need to cling to Jesus. And wherever there's things that just don't make sense, either I need to change my perspective or another person is wrong or a entire swath of people are wrong, 
And it can be scary to feel like you're in a minority view on something. But I think so long as you're willing to cling to the truth of who Jesus is to continue to serve him in the in the ways you know best that you can do to, to let him guide you on this journey to deconstruct hopefully what is wrong and reconstruct something that's that's better. And First John tells us that we should test the spirit. So don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see which are from God. And so if you're defining deconstruction that way, then that's something that we're all for. Thanks for listening to the Her and Him podcast. If you enjoyed hanging out with us, consider subscribing to the podcast to receive it automatically each week. Also be sure to head over to our website, hernhim.com, and you can get show notes for this episode, read our blogs, and other helpful resources. We'd also love to hear from you, so you can email us at herandhimblog at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we will see you next time. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.